Before we start, go to sashimi.cloud, sign up and receive transcripts of interviews and announcement of future guests. And now we start. Welcome to Season A of Sashimi. For episode 12, I interviewed Faisal Masood, a CEO of Fabric. Fabric is a cloud-native e-commerce platform for middle market and enterprise clients. The company recently raised 100 million in Series B, just five months after they 40 million Series A, and less than a year after they 10 million seed round. And this sequence certainly caught my attention, so I was looking forward to this interview. We discussed the history of Fabric and what's behind the incredible growth, and Faisal shared his vision for the company. You'll be interested to hear his takes on eBay, Amazon, UPS, and today's Silicon Valley. So enjoy. Well, Faisal, thank you very much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, as we chatted earlier, uh, when I read the press release about Fabric's rounds, I was blown away and I started reading about you and the company and I'm like, okay, it's going to be a fascinating conversation. So for people who don't know, what's Fabric? Fabric is a um, cloud-native, API-first, headless platform. And by headless, we mean how we have modularized our products to be stateless and individual. So in a typical e-commerce platform of the past, you would have a very monolithic architecture, which meant single points of failure. If one thing goes down, so does everything else. The front end is attached to the back end. In a headless environment um, architecture, the front end is separated from the back end. Hence, you can make changes the back end, whatever way you like, but it doesn't affect the customer experience. It gives you a lot of flexibility and the ability to be creative with your brand on a more sequence basis and also just allows you to have more freedom to run your business. Effectively, all of this is a bunch of APIs running your core e-commerce platform, which in the past, as you probably recall, through IBM or Oracle, this is all on-prem. Now it's 100% on the cloud. We're hosted on Amazon, AWS. And you're a CEO, and you joined the company, I think, sometime the last year? I did. I joined uh, mid of August last year. I've been involved with the company for much longer, though. Uh, got it. Can you tell us a little bit of the history of the company, how it came about, and what was your path to it? Yeah, I mean, the uh, the co-founders were from Staples, and they used to work on my team. And I've, I've known Ryan for many years. He uh, worked with me at eBay uh, when I ran Global Returns. Ryan was the product manager for that, also was a product lead for various other cart checkout, other uh, trust and safety areas of of eBay. And then when I I moved to Staples, I ended up uh, asking Ryan to come join my team and run all the applied innovation at uh, Staples along with the mobile team. And after I left and he left and we were doing different things uh, and um, he kind of came back and said, look, uh, I'm thinking about productizing the consulting that I do for e-commerce companies. I felt that was a great idea. And uh, we embarked on this journey where uh, he wanted to build out a suite of commerce APIs as a product versus in the past where he was consulting and helping companies think about what to build. And uh, fast forward, you know, spent the next three years building I was just on the sidelines, helping connecting with people, customers, hiring, et cetera. By the time the pandemic arrived, they had, ha- uh, you know, the company had two or three customers at that point. And uh, we were kind of getting gearing up to get ready for um, a fundraise. And that's when uh, I brought in some folks with me, uh, one of them being uh, Tim Galeri, who's the uh, one of the managing partners at Sierra Ventures. And... Uh, Tim basically said, look, if you're going to be CEO, I'll put in the money. Simple story, huh? 
Yeah. And so you can imagine it was not a trivial set of changes that had to take place, but uh, Ryan was pretty much on board and uh, we said, okay, let's get this done. So we ended up uh, raising about 10 million back then in August. It was seed round, right? It was a seed round. Yeah. And it was a pretty big seed for a seed to be yes. that large, quite significant. Um, and we were kind of off of the races with that funding, um, decided to sort of ratchet up our uh, branding efforts. I rebranded the company from scratch, all the way from our marketing communications uh, to the actual design, the physical design of our, of our brand and the ethos of our brand, the company values of our brand and, and our company in general. And uh, really accelerated the business um, all the way till the end of the year. We went from having two customers uh, or so to about 10 by the end of the year. So um, pretty fast acceleration that sort of embarked us on future rounds. I've read that in uh, February, you had your Series A round of 40 million plus. And just now, less than five months later, you raised Series B at 100 million. Yeah, the little secret is... Uh, <laughs> From our series seed to our term sheet signed in series A was probably around the same amount of time. We went from August to, I think we announced our round around October or so, and then we signed our term sheet for series A in December. So uh, it was not that different to A to B. Seed to A was about as fast as well. So you're saying we should prepare for series C? Well, I'm not saying anything. I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, I have general rule about fundraising, uh, which is I don't fundraise. When you try to fundraise, you typically end up making irrational decisions and unnatural things happen. Um, you have to let just run the business and let people know what you're doing and put some runs on the board. You put runs on the board, the VCs will come. They want to see a good product. They want to see a good team and they want to see momentum. And we did all three of those. You mentioned that you had about 10 uh, clients by the end of the year. What's the typical profile of those clients and what's a value proposition for them? Yeah, a typical uh, profile of that client is um, a customer that has outgrown Shopify in the tens of millions or a customer that has, has gotten tired of a monolith like Oracle or Salesforce that wants to have some more flexibility and freedom in running their business, whether the way their brand appears on their commerce experiences or the omni-channel, multi-channel marketplace distribution, B2B elements and complexity of the business that just some of these platforms just can't handle. So we have a split between, I mean, you know, we have a customer that's smaller, it's a mid-market, you know, 10 stores and tens of millions on online, like Universal Lacrosse uh, that used to be on Magento, it's moving over to Fabric. Then we have customers like ABC Carbon Home also was on Magento, moved over to Fabric. And then we have Build Direct that was a, a custom platform that uses parts of Fabric platform. So, and then we have GNC that, that is a much larger customer that uses a couple of our modules. So it, it's just all over the place. What we don't do is SMB. We, mm -hmm. we don't get into the smaller client. Why is that? Um, Shopify is a fantastic product. It's hard to argue. Shopify is a category maker. They pretty much killed web store. They are de facto number one. And, you know, Toby's built a great product for the SMBs. It is e-commerce in a box. And if you're anywhere revenues from zero to a million or two, like, frankly, it would be irresponsible to go with anything else. Shopify is a great product for that segment. And for us, our co-pilot apps, which are the user-facing apps, are not built for single individual companies. They're built for very expert users in companies. So a merchant, a marketer, an operator, a planner, an analyst, um, whereas Shopify is built for, you know, the single threaded owner, the mom and pop 
commerce experience that's one person doing everything, whereas our applications are individual specialized in doing that particular task. Got it. And how do you guys price your product? Is it based on modules? Yeah, it is based on modules. So we are um, 100% SaaS. We do not uh, believe in charging ref share. We only will charge ref share if there is a desire from the customer side to be ref share heavy. Typically, you will never see that because once you get into the hundreds of millions, you don't want to be giving out a percentage of your company uh, revenue to somebody. So we we believe that um, just because you're growing doesn't mean we should make more money. That doesn't seem reasonable to me. So we price by module and uh, the more modules you get, the bigger discount you get on top. Mm-hmm. And then the fewer you get, it's a standard flat rate annually. We don't charge by seat. We don't charge by any of those things. We keep it very, very simple. Commerce, service, monthly rate. That's it. Can you share the price of the modules or is this a secret? <laughs> I can and I cannot. Your, you know, <laughs> our, our typical customer can pay anywhere from 60000 a year all the way to hundreds of thousands a year. It really depends on the, how small the, the implementation is to how large, but typically it's in the hundreds of thousands. With that type of pricing, what's your go-to-market strategy? Our go-to-market strategy is pretty simple. We uh, we don't really have a lot of outbound motion. Our typical customer is a mid-market doing, you know, in the tens, if not hundreds of millions, looking to not spend a lot on rev share, establish more autonomy in their front end. So what they do with their customer experiences and having a very reliable knowledgeable amount of expense every month that they would with us. So if they took a, a traditional PIM with us, which is a catalog, that's not going to cost them more than a little over six figures. They don't have to worry about, you know, how much do I have to pay for the seats and the rev share and the SaaS and the any other, you know, service maintenance fees. We don't do any of that. It's very simple. Um, so our motion is pretty simple. We get the inbound request to view our demo. We provide a demo of our products where the need exists. And then after that, it's really, it's a very technical sale to be very clear. Mm-hmm. We don't have traditional sales teams. Our sales team is very sales engineering and solutions driven team. So you have to be prepared to do a technical sale. This is not selling a, you know, um, a Kindle. This is selling a complex um, product that, has to fit in within your needs. And you know our APIs are out of the box, but th- there will be some work that they'll have to do to integrate. So um, I think our motion is uh, very much focused on the customer needs and we don't try to sell anything that they don't need. It seems to me that's pretty much product-led growth. Yes, and ultimately, you know, where we will get to very soon is going to be, think about Stripe mm-hmm. for payments. Fabric would be for commerce. The challenge is Stripe is one small sliver of e-commerce, which is payments. We are all the other pieces, the entire cake, which is you know identity, customer, item, price, promo, cart, coupon, checkout, returns. So we manage the whole full gamut versus just the payment. You integrate with Stripe, I'm guessing. Yeah, we're pretty open, right? We 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 remain open. It's, it could be Stripe, it could be somebody else. We don't really care. We have no preference. We have a lot of partnerships, uh, whether it's with search or returns or tax or others. We 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 are not in the business of trying to do everything. Got it. And this is pretty big market for you, right? How do you focus your your sales strategies? Yeah, I mean the headless market is quite large now, and we are very precise on what makes sense to us. The size of the customer is important. The category is very important. So B2B is quite a sweet spot for us. 
B2B is um, an area where Shopify just can't compete because the complexity of a B2B customer is very different to that of a DTC customer. So um, a headless solution for a B2B customer is much more appropriate than not. So we, we find that when we get those, those are very attractive to us. One of the reasons, because you've been in Staples, right? And Staples is B2B and you know that field quite well. You know, uh, yes, it's that. But also you kind of know that when you're selling to a B2B customer, a B2B customer buying from a B2B website or store is looking for very specialized product, Mm -hmm. group buying, group cart, role-based purchasing, role-based permissions and budgets, differentiated payment methods, bill twos differentiated ship twos, split ship twos. So you can't even do one of those things on Shopify, let alone the rest. So we find that this to be a, a specialization for us that A, we know what the business is. So that's helpful. And then B, the technology is built to serve all of those needs. Can you share the size of the company from perspective of employees? And if you can share the revenue number, it would be awesome. But I don't know if you can. We don't share revenue. We're you know we're a private company, so we we reserve that right. But I can say that uh, the company has uh, has grown dramatically over the last uh, 10, 11 months. Uh, year to date, we've grown about eight hundred percent. Year to date. Year to date, we're growing eight hundred percent. Yes. Oh my goodness. And you know we have do- dozens of customers, so it's it's not a small setup anymore where it used to be back in the day. We have about one hundred sixty-five, seventy employees or so, FTEs, and then of course we have other consultants as well. We're a global company. We're in probably eight to 10 zip codes, uh, sorry, time zones. And we are in uh, various countries, Canada, US, uh, UK, India, Pakistan. I'm going to forget one. There's probably another. It's already impressive. UAE, I think we have some employees there. So yeah, it's quite widespread. I mean, we've, we've been born out of remote, which is a lot harder to do for various reasons. Uh, one is you don't know the individuals. You've never met them in person it makes the situation more complex. Second is you're selling enterprise sales on Zooms. Not exactly easy. So um, I think that uh, once the pandemic, if ever, goes away, we have built a lot of muscle around areas that are very hard to do, that our execution becomes a lot better with uh, people coming back to the offices. Uh, You mentioned that you've grown 800% this year. And I saw the statistics in the press release that your net retention was 230%, something ridiculous. That's right. Is it primarily because you had a couple of large clients that added a lot of modules or you see the trend across many clients that are continuously adding new modules? It's quite a few clients that have added more modules. I mean, uh, when we started our journey to raise our Series B, we had already come to a point where once our customers have gotten a flavor of fabric, they want to try more because mm-hmm. the modules work well together. And from a cost basis, it's a pretty dramatic improvement for the customer. And plus, they have one vendor to deal with, one SaaS vendor to, to deal with, and makes their life a lot easier too. And our customer success team is uh, quite equipped to understand and listen to the needs of the customer. So we, I mean, GNC is one, we started with one product, we're at product number three right now. So, and we believe we're going to sell more because if we can prove ourselves to them, we will continue to sell more. And it's not that different to sort of AWS in many ways. AWS will, you know, start with S3 and compute and EC2 and, and then it's DynamoDB and then Aurora. And we see ourselves as AWS of commerce. Do you have like direct competitor or by the time companies reach out to you, they 
just want to work with you and or they basically compare you with someone else and trying to pick one it's a mixed bag if it's an enterprise it's usually an rfp mm -hmm. we don't mind that we we actually like showing off our demos we like showing off our product because people get to see you know you look at our websites and the speed and what we do i mean i built staples.com and a simple example if you do the page speed test on staples.com which is all microservices that we built mm -hmm. it's a 99 score if you look at the shopify staples.ca i think it's like a 50 so you know the the headless platform works it's it's faster it's more flexible it's more scalable and we pride ourselves in that we have a better product and um, we don't see competition as a challenge we don't see the customers as a challenge the only thing that we fear is our own execution yeah and you've grown very fast right so you said you have about 170 employees how's the company structured from perspective of different departments and how do you manage all these people great question so we um we're structured pretty similar to other SaaS type organizations, some nuances, because I, I don't come from SaaS, as you, as you know, as you can tell from my background, I'm a, I come from the enterprise. I come from a sort of FANG type background. And um, I have a point of view on this, which is, you know, you, you have to people put people in the right seats where they can be most successful. So I own from a structure perspective, you know, the typical legal finance uh, people, sales, those are the core areas, right, that, that fall under me. And then uh, Ryan, our co-founder, owns uh, all things product. So anything to do with product is under him. And then, um, of course, technology rolls up under me. And that's our CTO, Omar. Uh, he's also from Amazon. He owns all things uh, product delivery and engineering, architecture, security, all that. And then um, we have, of course, the sales team that reports to me as well. Um, that's that's the structure today. We don't have a, a pure play sort of partnerships organization yet. Our uh, chief legal counsel mm -hmm. uh, owns that today, but we, we will be staffing for that as well. I saw you just hired a chief marketing officer. We did, yes. So that's the other individual that reports to me. So Karen, yeah, just joined us. Yeah, we were delighted to have her on the team. So I think you added quite a few of those senior executives fairly recently. We have, yeah. We added a CTO back in, I think, January, February. We added... Um, EVP of uh, revenue, Mike Han from uh, from the industry. Actually, he joined. I want to say December or January, somewhere around there. He's mm -hmm. he knows better. Then we added Karen. Uh, we added Nevin, our CFO. Krupa, our um, John Counsel. We added Morgan, who's our SVP of product. Mm -hmm. He's ex Google as well. Um, so yeah, we've added some real people. But but the common theme across all those people are they they know me. Some nepotism has taken place there, huh? You know, for critical hires, it's um, I hear all these horror stories about startups and you know what happens and hiring and all that. Frankly, I've never had a hard time hiring because I've grown up in an environment where I believe that treat people the way you want to be treated, give the right people the autonomy to go do what they have to do and pay them what they deserve. And the rest just works out. If you don't like micromanagers, then don't be one. Right, you have to live by own, your own rules with other people as well. And then um, we establish our values pretty early at Fabric. And one of our biggest values is seek to understand before being understood. And that's at the kernel of our company. Everybody is an active listener, not a passive. And we need to hear each other's point of views before we form any opinions. I've always believed that the culture of the company has to be one that's vibrant, fast-paced, thoughtful, empathetic, but also very data-driven. And so the folks that I've brought are the fit right in. I believe, and I know we have the most talented e-commerce 
technology team in the world. I think one person we didn't mention is customer success. Yeah, we have a customer success leader, uh, Nessa Garcia. She reports today into our CPO organization because customer success has so much information coming back from the customer around the product Interesting. that those primitives that we build, those backlog of our product that we build, the closest to that is the customer success team. And the customer success team has twofold agenda. Number one, ensuring the NPS is high and keeping the customers happy. And number two, identifying other opportunities where Fabric can fit in. But you do that by understanding the product and understanding the product needs from the customer. So um, today it lives there. We, we haven't really determined where it lives long-term, but uh, it's, been, it's been great having her on the team. From what I just heard, it seems like your customer success is not really focused on revenue, right? Not upsells. It's more of the hearing the client and channeling the message to the product team. Is it fair? It's it's fair. Sometimes it is driven by that. If you see the opportunity that's like there's a huge need, then we should we should try to go and figure out a path to mm-hmm. sell that. But but I I truly believe great software is bought, it's not sold. We will show you the product. And if you like it, you will do it. You know, trying to sell software, like being pushy and salesy, that's never really a great idea. I felt the same way about raising money. I feel the same way about sales. So our CS team's number one agenda is customer happiness. After that, it's more in that customer happiness. How can they make them happier with what they have today? Are there areas where we can help? That customer success team helps with that. Our solutions team sits under Mike which is our sales organization mm-hmm. and is primarily focused on um, really that technical sale that takes place during discovery. And you got to have the veterans in that space know how to evaluate the product. So your sales and marketing are going to be working together closely. Very closely. Yeah. And you can imagine in marketing, it's uh, uh, very much about the product market sort of yeah. fit yeah. and product led selling mm-hmm. uh, online. And all the motions that go along with product marketing, brand, PR, content, and then all the digital, SEO, et cetera, social, all that lives under. What KPI would you use to measure effectiveness of marketing and customer success in this uh, context? I think NRR is a good metric. Uh, Retention rate is a big metric. Mm -hmm. Um, And having a retention rate that we do is uh, symbolic to how we have performed. I mean, when we're raising our round, the key SaaS metrics that we had from growth all the way to NRR to cycle times of uh, selling, et cetera, we were, you know, our CFO always said we're two standard deviations better than the median. It's not easy to get there. You have to pay a lot of attention to the customers and we have our own challenges, but who doesn't? But in the end, we love our customers more than we love our product and that will never change. Everything you said sounds amazing, and I'm just trying to kind of marry this to Silicon Valley and capitalism and everything that's uh, going to come with you guys raising raising so much money. And I'm wondering, like, is there ever going to be pressure on you saying, like, you know, everything that we believe is great, but how about we make our customer success upsell more aggressively and let's uh, let's focus on uh, top line growth because we have this five-year holding period which we approach and we need to exit this company how do you react to that you know when i was at amazon at every all hands there was one thing that i attended when uh, the stock would go up and down and there'd be all these things and jeff always said we don't get smarter when the stock goes up and we don't get dumber when the stock goes down so let me stage this answer by saying that first. So as the context, 
we don't have some arbitrary timeline in our head of like, here's our exit, whatever. I think if you focus your business based on your core inputs, which are customer satisfaction, a product that fits, a seamlessness of our integration, self-service, really good documentation, mm-hmm. the sales will come. You know, how many times do you walk into a car dealership and you're being pushy, pushed by some pushy salesperson? Do you like that? You don't. Uh, you like the salespeople who don't push and they're just there. We are there to address the customer's needs. And as a result, what's interesting is we've had a lot of referrals from our customers. Hmm. So I believe that if you have a high NPS and you're very solutions oriented and you're insisting on the high standards, demand will come. Have you measured your NPS yet? We haven't yet because we just, you know, that many customers, we need to get more velocity. If you have hundreds and hundreds of customers, then, then it becomes a little bit more material. But Our success team is in constant contact with our customers. We have a very good pulse on it. Um, mm-hmm. I measure it through escalations, right? How many sub ones do we have? How many sub twos do we have? What are the uh, sub one, sub two cycle times on getting fixed? And we have this process called COE, correction of errors, where I'm okay with new problems. I'm not okay with repeat problems. We're very stringent. Our CTO is very maniacal about sort of uh, process and mechanisms that make us successful. And the data... You know, at Amazon, it's, it's, you probably know this or don't know this. When I, when I arrived at eBay, I was in Bern, Switzerland on my first week. And uh, sitting in this big conference room, they were presenting all these graphs and like, oh, look at our business. And eBay was just losing left and right to Amazon. I mean, it was just, Amazon was crushing eBay in 2011. And somebody put up this chart of this NPS. And I was like, what's it? I didn't even know what NPS was. I had no idea coming out of Amazon. No clue. And they're like, yeah, this is NPS Net Promoter School. I'm like, what's that? And so this Bain metric of like, would the customer promote you or are they a detractor? Something like that, right? I get the general sense, yeah. right? So I'm like, okay, well, why is Amazon on that chart? They're like, oh, we track Amazon. Wait, you track Amazon? Yeah. I'm like, well, Amazon doesn't track Amazon. Okay, well, we track them. And Amazon was substantially better than eBay. I mean, not even close. And eBay tracked NPS. In fact, their CEO was from Bain back then, even the previous one. So it just tells you that if you focus on the most customer-centric things, you don't need to do surveys. Surveys are usually wrong, right? They're directional. They're not always right. eBay was absolutely obsessed with surveys. When was the last time you got a survey from Amazon? Yeah, like never. There you have it. So we believe that at the core of our business, we have to be extremely customer-centric, be amazing listeners, and translate that into the product that we produce. And if we don't do that, then we shouldn't exist. I, I totally agree with you. I just, I'm just trying to think with everyone in Silicon Valley trying to move towards this data-driven environment where they measure pretty much everything. That's what I'm trying to understand, how you fit into that culture. And it seems like you're more of the focused on the intuitive, qualitative stuff versus quantifying everything. We quantify everything. I mean, our burn rates, our cycle times, every metric in Jira is tracked to the umpteenth degree by customer, by everything. But there's a difference in just survey data mm-hmm. and real data. Most people don't do survey. I don't do surveys. So you've got silent sufferers, people who are dealing with crap and they just don't report it. What is the real data is how is your platform? How many nines? How many sev ones? What's the ticket resolution time? How many inbound requests from our customers? Here you are they referring us? 
Are they expanding? What's the net retention rate? There's ways to get real data without having to create more surveys. I think Silicon Valley is wrong about this. I think they're misled about this. They're misled about a lot of things, especially VC Twitter is misled all over the place. <laughs> I mean, I read those threads and I'm just amazed at how bad the advice is. Yeah, VC Twitter, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> so you, you, speaking of VCs, you've raised a lot of money. Isn't tempting to go out and start spending it? And what do you plan to spend this money on? Um, you know, it's helpful when you come from a non-privileged background that you are frugal out the gate. That's just who you are. And at the core of our business, we're just frugal. We don't like wasting money. We shut down all of our offices when the pandemic hit. We weren't paying rent. We stopped all of that. We don't believe in that. We stopped all travel. We, we just don't believe in excessive spend. The other part of this is, <laughs> fortunately or unfortunately, growing up at Amazon in my early days, frugality was one of the principles, right? You had to stay at a third-rate hotel, fly the cheapest flight. wasn't fun, but it kind of ingrains you in like, why do you do that? You do that so that you save all the money to pass the savings to your customer. So for us, it's been, yeah, we've got the money, but we've got the money for a very specific purpose, to hire the best, to build the best technology, and to expand globally in a rapid pace so we have the cash and you know, M&A if we need to. Does this mean we all of a sudden start spending it in places that it's unnecessary? No, we, we don't do that. We see a lot of startups who do that. that that's not going to be us. Yeah. Uh, and I'm fairly hung up on this. Like This is something we just don't do. And you have who is who on your uh, cup table. You have Norwest Venture Partners, uh, Sierra, Greycroft, Redpoint. Like, how involved are they in into day-to-day operations? And what do you have to run by them? If I was a 26-year-old uh, startup CEO, I'd probably have to run everything by them, including, you know, what time do I wake up? I don't run anything by them. They're extremely helpful. I go to them when I need them. They come to me when they have questions. We have an incredible board. Uh, we have amazing investors, always willing to help, but they're dealing with adults. Mm-hmm. This is not some fly-by-night startup that's uh, built by you know folks who had a good idea and don't know what to do after that. The reason we've been able to get so much funding is one of actually one investor, I won't name him, but he's been pretty incredible too. He said, you're building a team that doesn't have to be changed when you hit 100 million ARR or 200 million ARR. This team already knows how to take it to 5 billion ARR if needed. That is the difference that when you have built over myself alone, over 12, 13, 14 businesses and been a general manager, building those businesses from product to engineering, to supply chain, to dealing with customers and marketing, et cetera, you already know a lot of the gotchas. Yeah, there might be some new ones, sure, but you already know a lot of them versus you're some IT guy who started a company, nothing wrong with them, but they've never run a business. They've never run an e-commerce business. Well, to build a technology company, you got to know how you run it. How's it run? Like, how do you set up an item? How do you price an item? How do you scrape the item? What's a weighted price index? Like, how do you build your inventory? How distributed is it? How do you manage returns? What's a defective allowance? If you went and talked to any of these founders, talk to Shopify executives. They wouldn't know what this stuff is. They have no idea. You know, Toby's amazing. He's built a great technology, but does he know about the business of running day to day? I would argue they don't. So, or other startups where we have having built Amazon Basics or Amazon Warehouse or Amazon Trade-In or Electronics Business or Groupon Goods or Staples, you name it, go down the list. Yeah, yeah, I saw it's very impressive. It takes a level of muscle memory and understanding what to expect when you do X, Y, or Z. And what are the scalability challenges you'll face? What are the talent challenges you'll face? What are the technology challenges you'll face? And surrounding yourself with people who have been there, done that as well. 
very different to uh, going to consultants and asking them or sending out surveys to find out what to do. We don't need to do any of that. We will always be open to information, though. You sort of answered this question directly uh, throughout this interview, but what's the long-term vision on the company? I think we're building a $100 billion business or more. It's going to be a very big business. You're dealing with a $7 trillion GMV TAM. We have a $20 trillion TAM by 2027, and I mentioned this earlier with the B2B. There could be another five participants in the space, and everybody is still okay. You know, people keep asking me like, oh, what about Shopify and Amazon and so on and so forth? I'm like, why can't we coexist? I would argue if Amazon didn't enter the logistics space, FedEx and UPS would be dead. They would be in deep, deep trouble. Imagine scaling to the pandemic on your own without the package last mile service that Amazon built. Imagine that for a second. In a pie this big, we don't see competitors as the threat. We see keeping customers happy as the threat. Faisal, thank you very much for the interview. It was great. Of course. Thank you. Thanks for having me.